The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. I'm a Black American. I am proud of who I am. Together, we can make a change in the world. I like to take sounds and put them on the microscope. There's a driving bass. You become the bass. Let the music write itself. I don't sing it if I don't mean it. (laughs) Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news, discussion and interviews on the King of Pop. Hello and welcome to the MJ Cast. I'm your host, Jamin Bull, and welcome back to our special with Matt Forger. This is part two. We are super lucky to be here talking with Matt Forger, one of the most important collaborators that Michael Jackson ever had in the studio. I'm also here with Charlie Thompson, my co-host, and uh, I feel very, very lucky to be here. Gentlemen, welcome back to the MJ Cast. How are we both doing? Yep, I'm okay. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing fine. That's great. (laughs) I believe last episode we worked through the 80s and we worked through Thriller. We talked about Captain EO. We talked about Bad. Here we are ready to delve into the 90s with the dangerous history and blood on the dance floor eras, which I'm super excited about. But Matt, we wanted to sort of kick this episode off with talking a little bit more about a life event that happened for you right at the end of the bad era, I guess. Bad came out in 1987. Michael was touring through 1988 and 89 even maybe. But right during that period, you became a father. That's true. Uh, in 1988, my wife and I uh, were blessed with a, a daughter. And that was uh, a big event for us because of medical issues. She was born uh, very premature. So uh, she faced some uh, challenging issues. You know, very often when things happen in life, you have choices to make. This was a time when I said, okay, I'm going to have to make uh, course correction adjustments here in uh, career goals and in how I allocate my time and attention because when you're young and you think you are invincible and indestructible and uh, you're going to live forever, it's real easy to go charge ahead really hard. But then sometimes you get a wake-up call and something happens and that makes you stand back and then I think a little bit more in depth about maybe there's a slightly bigger picture. Maybe there's more in your life and in the world than just the I, me, mine type of uh, attitude. When you have a child, you suddenly realize that life is not all about you. You now are responsible for someone else's life. Children come into the world as infants and they need a lot of attention and a lot of care. And it's a great responsibility. Uh, My hat's off to all the parents out there who take the time to be sure that uh, their children grow up in nurturing environments. They get good influences in good things educationally and, and time and attention. It's been proven that the first three years of life is the most important portion of a human being's life because this is when most 
of the cognitive process is being developed uh, neurologically. And by the time you're approximately five or six years old, your brain has developed to approximately 90 to 95% of the size of the brain is uh, as an adult. So this is a tremendously important uh, time for parents to uh, give attention to the children. And it's not just that you have to make sure they're safe and they're not hurting themselves, but engage with them and allow the children to see and learn because all of that play that goes on, that is the forming of neural pathways in the brain, neural circuits. And this is an important time. So this is something that uh, being the science geek that I am, I've read up a little bit uh, on the subject. You want your child to grow up to be a strong, independent adult and the first uh, several years are very critical. My own daughter, unfortunately, was born premature, so she was faced with some additional disabilities due to the extent of the prematurity, and uh, that made me uh, reassess a lot of how my life was to unfold from that point forward. This all happened right around the time Michael was on the bad tour between the bad and dangerous albums. So to what extent were you involved with what Michael was up to at that point, And how did he support you through this? At that time, my daughter was born in 1988. So I wasn't heavily involved in any commitments to Michael uh, in the studio. Uh, he was on tour. When we finally then did come back to get together and dive into studio work, my daughter was very young. And as you know, caring for an infant uh, requires a certain amount of care and attention. I realized that as my daughter grew, that level of care and attention was in some way still required, even as she got older, because of her disabilities and, and what she needed to survive and be strong and to have the best quality of life that she could. Michael was, was always very encouraging, very supportive of me. Fortunately, there was a little bit of a time break there before we jumped back into the studio. So the dust had settled by the time we, I got the call to come back in the studio and start on what was uh, a dangerous project. And so when that call did come, did it mean that you were less involved in the project than you had been on previous projects? So were you able by that point to commit yourself fully to the album? No, I was able to fully commit myself to the album. I'm fortunate in the fact that I have worked as an independent contractor, being an independent recording engineer. To some extent, I don't have to be at a job on a regular basis but one, I do need to be there. Then as a family, we made adjustments so that uh, I was totally involved. I didn't have to uh, not be there if there was a particular day when possibly I, I needed to uh, be involved with some other kind of issue. That wouldn't be a problem for me because I could take a few hours off in an afternoon if we needed to go to doctor's appointments or something. When I did get the call, interestingly enough, it was another one of those calls of, uh, Michael has some songs and uh, he wants to go in the studio. 
and record some ideas. There wasn't a distinct, this is the new album and it's going to be called Dangerous and we're going to start the work now. It started actually with myself and Michael. We went into Westlake and this would have been uh, the summer, June or July of 1989. Michael and I, and a few other musicians, obviously, who were doing the performing, the programming, worked for what was then going to actually, I'm not sure how many people are aware, but we were, the original intent was to do an album called Decade. Decade was to be a greatest hits album with potentially two or three new original tracks from Michael. So that was the initial concept or the initial thought. And uh, we went in the studio and it started working away. Shortly thereafter, I know Bill Betrell around that same time or shortly after that, he started working at another studio on some ideas. And of course, uh, Bad was the third album that Quincy had produced. And uh, Quincy had a, what was typically a three album deal for producing three albums uh, with Michael. So this now was Michael on his own, taking the helm and uh, producing. Bill came into the picture. Billy was familiar with Michael and the Jacksons because he had worked to some extent on the Victory album with some of the brothers in uh, preparation for the Victory tour. Bill was a uh, was kind of a familiar face, and Bill brought in someone that he knew from studio work. I'm not sure exactly where he met him, but uh, Brad Buxer first appeared on the scene. Bill and myself, we each were in studios at uh, Westlake again. We were working on uh, new songs. When you first get there, the summer of 89, and Michael's looking at recording a few new songs for a Greatest Hits package, do you remember what those earliest tracks were? that you and he were working on together? I was working on a, a track called uh, They Don't Care About Us. Billy was working on a track, and I also was, uh, I started the track as well, Earth Song. And of course, those were songs that uh, got shelved from being released on the Dangerous album, but then reappeared on the uh, History album. Another of the tracks that we worked on, the working title was uh, Feed the World, which of course later became Heal the World, uh, and that was released on the Dangerous album. I think that was the first song that Brad really contributed to in terms of the uh, working directly with Michael and getting the the structure and the the song, bringing it into being, because the, the way Michael works with someone... They work very much in a musical context before we actually hit the red button and actually start recording. He likes to get the structure, the feel, the the tempo, the key, understanding of the melody and all of the supporting elements, the chords of the uh, track, the rhythm section. 
I remember quite clearly uh, Brad sitting at the baby grand piano in Westlake Studio C with Michael, and I was sitting uh, on the other side of the glass just waiting for them to let me know they were ready to begin actually recording the ideas. So that was how that song first came to be. I'm interested to know what form They Don't Care About Us was in. Was that the first time that Michael had brought that song to you, the first time you'd been aware of it? Yes. People tend to assume that They Don't Care About Us is a reaction to what happened to Michael in 93 in terms of its lyrical content and the sort of ferocity of it. Was it very much the same even before that when he brought it to you in 89 or was it in a different form back then? No, it was exactly in that same form. It was something that uh, I think was more a result of the experiences that he had as a result of the bad tour seeing different cultures, different societies around the world, seeing what people had to endure in other countries, and a much more a global view of mankind. Was there any discussion of the fact that Quincy was not going to be working on the project? Was that communicated and was a reason given for that? Well, it was my understanding from the onset even from the time of Thriller, I was aware of the fact that Quincy had the three-album deal. The three albums being Off the Wall, Thriller, and Bad, I didn't expect Quincy to be back. I didn't inquire, would he be part of the project or not? There wasn't any expectation that all of a sudden Quincy was going to drop in and do something. It wouldn't have surprised me if he had shown up, but because I understood the nature of the way Quincy had coached Michael for so long was for Michael to really become his own person, uh, really take control of his sound, the songs, the arrangements, the production. So it was kind of in my mind, it was the, the logical transition of uh, Michael graduating from the uh, University of Quincy Jones into. Uh, real life. Now, uh, you know, Michael was uh, taking the reins and he was in control of how things were going to move forward. So you get there with this handful of new songs, They Don't Care About Us and uh, Feed the World as it was then, and Earth Song. How does the project evolve from a few songs for a greatest hits package into the Dangerous album? How quickly did it become clear that this was going to be something much bigger? Well, we had worked in the studio, as I mentioned, we started in the uh, the summer of 89. We worked quite diligently on that. I believe there was something else that was started that probably didn't get past the point of being a groove. I don't remember uh, many other ideas or many other tracks or demos. I know there were some scratch things just that were very bare bones. But a lot of time went into those three songs, principally. As the end of 89 closed in on us, there was a little bit of a Christmas holiday break that we took. Behind the scenes, I was kind of out of the loop in terms of what was happening. But at the same time, Michael was talking to Bruce Wedeen. 
Up to that point, Bruce had not been involved. Over the holiday season, Bruce came on board the project. The decision was made that the operation in the base of all of the, the work would be shifted from Westlake to a different studio, which was uh, Record One, which was in the San Fernando Valley. It wasn't in the, the middle of Hollywood as the Westlake uh, studio was. The actual reason for the shift was that the building that the studios were in, because we were working in Studio C and Studio D on Santa Monica Boulevard, Thriller and Captain Neo, we had worked on in Studio A and in Studio B, which is on Beverly Boulevard in, in uh, the Hollywood area. The Westlake building also housed another portion of the Westlake audio business operation. There were just other people in the hallways. There were other people in the building. They had a, a maintenance shop that fixed gear and, and people who sold equipment. Michael really wanted privacy working on a project. And Record One offered just that. It was a, a building in the Sherman Oaks area of uh, the San Fernando Valley. It was two studio rooms, and it was uh, owned by Alan Sides, who was the uh, owner of Ocean Way, where we had on occasion worked uh, a few times previously. It allowed Michael to have complete privacy at the facility. There was no one that could gain entrance to the parking lot or the building unless they were specifically there to work with Michael or in somehow involved with the project. And Michael liked that idea because then that studio kind of became a more relaxed. If I was to explain that the studio had Studio A and Studio B, and between those two at either ends of the building, there was a central lounge room that had a fireplace and it had a full kitchen it was almost like a studio that had a home-feeling component to it. I know Michael felt relaxed. He could just kind of hang out. When we worked there, there was a thing that we used to uh, do. There were uh, two women who were chefs. They were cooks, and they had worked with Michael previously. They would come on Fridays, and we would have a wonderfully prepared meal for the entire staff and everyone involved on the project. In which case, everyone just kind of, you know, kicked back in this living room area that studio provided. So it was a much more relaxed, home-like environment. Michael also had a private uh, lounge and a private office for any uh, business or any, if he wanted to, uh, relax or work on music on his own. He also has privacy. So the design of the building lent itself much more to what Michael was looking for in terms of a work facility. Now, at some point, you end up with this situation going on where you've got multiple producers in different places putting together material. So at some point, Teddy Riley comes in. You mentioned Billy Petrell. And Brian Loren at one point is working on the project. 
do you remember much about the chronology of how and when different people were coming onto this project that was turning into a new album? Yes, uh, originally when we uh, first made the shift over the holiday season to the beginning of 90, I was working engineering with Brad Buxer and we were also working on another song uh, that Michael had come up with, which was Will You Be There? So I was the engineer in Studio B working with Brad Buxer primarily. Bruce was working on songs in Studio A. At some point, Michael became aware of Brian Loren. I'm not positive on this. I believe he was from someplace in the uh, Minneapolis area. I believe he'd had some hit records at that point. Someone brought him to Michael's attention because of uh, the uh, uh, songwriting he was doing. At that time, uh, the room which I was working in got handed off to Brian Loren. He had another engineer come on who was working with him in that room. And Brian was very uh, prolifically writing songs uh, for Michael. Then there was another small lounge area room that uh, was converted to a, uh, a workspace for myself. And I had a digital workstation that I was working on in that room. Loren followed me in kind of taking over Studio B because he was working on a lot of songs. I think there was at least half a dozen titles over the period of time that he worked there. Then again, I don't know how Michael became aware of Teddy Riley. Teddy Riley and his band Guy were from someplace in uh, Virginia, uh, Atlantic City, or Virginia Beach, someplace on the East Coast. Michael became aware of him. He was doing a style of music that was called New Jack Swing at the time, the kind of leading edge of, of uh, hip-hop. Brian Loren was very much uh, working in a very funky style. He had, he had some great funky grooves that he did. Michael wanted to work on something that was very new and very different. So when Teddy Riley came and visited and uh, he came into the studio at Record One, he saw both of the control rooms and he commented that while it was a good studio and he had no reservations about the quality of the recording consoles, they were in fact slightly older, more vintage consoles that had been souped up or hot rotted. Studio B that I worked in uh, was uh, an API console, which uh, had a, a more of a vintage sound, very punchy sounding, um, very clean. The other room that Bruce uh, worked in had a custom Neve console. It was an AD input, very large uh, custom Neve again, based on more of a vintage uh, circuitry design. And Teddy Riley said, well, I'm familiar with a uh, different kind of recording console, and I do a lot of the engineering myself. So he didn't feel like either of those studios would work for the type of the style of work that he was doing. He was more familiar with what was called the SSL console. The SSL console had a lot of bells and whistles and very high-tech 
a lot of processing that typically was outboard of the actual recording console was incorporated into the SSL console design. So that was something that he utilized, and the decision was made then to get another studio facility for Teddy Riley to work in. Teddy Riley then moved into Larrabee North, which was located in the Studio City area, which was maybe about a 10 or 15 minute drive from where we were in Sherman Oaks. So he got to work on a very large SSL console, which was the piece of equipment that he knew because he, on occasion, would do his own engineering. He wanted an engineer to work with him. And the engineer that then came on board to work with him was Dave Way, who was a Los Angeles guy. So we added yet a second facility that was also a multi-room facility. So at that point, we had quite a large operation going. There were up to three to four discrete studios that were actually online. Michael, again, wanted complete privacy at the Larrabee North facility, so he rented out basically the entire facility. I mean, everyone was just cranking away, working on music. I know Michael enjoyed the fact that all the studios were working and a lot of material was being created. Yeah, it sounds like a really prolific time for all of these different teams working in tandem. It sort of reminds me of a bit of a quote from your first episode uh, when we recorded last week, and you said that there has to be a captain, there has to be a leader, somebody that's steering the boat. And I'm thinking about this dangerous era as compared back to those 80s recording times, especially for Thriller, I guess. And we're moving away from Quincy steering the ship with all the personnel into more of a Motown influence system of teams being sort of, I don't know about pitted against each other, but they're working in competition to get their songs on the record. So what were the pros and cons in your opinion of this change? One of the things that happened was that Billy Betrell then became in place in the second studio room, the B studio room of the Larrabee North facility. So now we basically had uh, four control rooms, four studio rooms that were working. Michael was really wanting things that were new, that were fresh, that were different. And this really allowed him the fact that he could work with a person who was a songwriter, producer, programmer, engineer, or individual teams of Uh, those components, and they would be all developing their own music in their own style. I don't know if I went into this detail in the last conversation, but now it became more clear. The point being, Bruce Wedeen did the big, beautiful, lush, huge stereo, lots of depth, great rich textures. Billy Betrell was doing the stuff that was a little bit more rock-edged in some of the quirkier types of songs. Brian Loren was working on songs that had a, a very funky vibe, kind of in, 
keeping with the Minneapolis type of uh, funk uh, that was coming out of that city. Teddy Riley was bringing in the new Jack Swing, leading into a more hip-hop direction. Each one of these teams kind of were developing things along a particular type of sound, a particular type of direction. One of the things I think I might have mentioned last time was that when Michael worked with me, I didn't come as a person who had a signature sound or style. And when I worked with Michael, my only philosophy was let me get inside Michael's head and let me pull out all of those ideas the way he's hearing it and let's get that recorded on tape the way he wants to hear it, the way he wants the the sounds and the characters to be. In that way, everyone was fulfilling kind of a different niche, if you want to say, of musically working in a different direction. So things weren't really overlapped and when one set of people or individuals were working on a, a song that song was going to be a song that was had a certain sound that was kind of the prose of it yes it was competitive at the same time michael was giving his attention to each of these individual parties individually if there was a song being developed by bruce and him and Michael would be talking about exactly what this character would be, what the overdubs would be, who the musicians or or how the elements would be. If he was talking with uh, Brian Loren, they were talking about different sound characters that Michael would want to hear for that style of music. Teddy Riley brought in an entire library of sound characters with him. The New Jack Swing, there was much more of a element of the found original kind of sounds, uh, recorded samples, industrial sounds. When you listen to some of Teddy Riley's songs, I mean, there's a car horn, there's a jackhammer, there's a crash. Uh, uh, there's just all of these mix of components. So Michael was really enjoying that going in that direction. So while there was a competitive thing, no one was competing for the same space. Everyone was competing in moving whatever it was they were working on, pushing as far as they could in terms of making something. What did the character of the song require? A song like some of the ones that Bruce did were the bigger productions, the bigger, more ballad, mid-tempo ones. At the same time, Bruce had a relationship with Renee Moore. So Renee Moore brought a track in that uh, he and Bruce worked on, which was Jam. The ones that Teddy was working on had a more unique character in that direction. The song uh, Feed the World became Heal the World. And of course, that was a song that Bruce worked on uh, because that had that huge, rich, lush sound. While I began the track for Will You Be There at a certain point, the recordings that I had initially started were then handed off to Bruce for the final elements, the Andre Crouch Choir and, and some of the, the final overdub parts and uh, keep the faith. There was this distinct delineation, the fact that 
everyone's songs they were working on as producer engineers or writers, they were all headed in different directions. And in that way, Michael was really getting to cover a lot of ground in terms of variety of character. What song would you say that you were most intimately involved with from its conception all the way through to its completion for the Dangerous album? Well, the two songs that I was most involved with was uh, initially with Heal the World and then later with Will You Be There. As I had done in Bad, I expected that I would develop this to the point where it truly represented what Michael uh, was expecting and wanting to hear. In this case, these tracks were handed over to Bruce, and he came in for the finalization of the final elements. So those were two of the songs that I was involved in for the greatest part of time. In terms of Will You Be There, obviously there's some beautifully poetic and cryptic lyrics throughout it, you know, especially towards the end of the song where it's that spoken word delivery. Did Michael ever talk to you about the deeper meaning of the song or what he was trying to achieve with it in terms of messaging? Not specifically. In those terms, very often Michael would work on lyrics, sometimes by himself, sometimes Buzz Cohen would sometimes come on board and help Michael with different things lyrically. Because at that point in time, I didn't really want to get in and get my hands dirty under the hood in the inner workings of things. If I had a question for Michael, he would answer, of course. But I also was not wanting to kind of force him in terms of, Michael, tell me, tell me about this. Why did you use this phrase or why is this imagery something that you did? These things would unfold and I would see them in their natural state of unfolding. Michael spoke about the songwriting process and he said it's very important when you're working on a song to not get in the way of the song and let the song become what it desires to be, the inevitable route of that. It comes into being as its own entity. And uh, this kind of uh, goes along with the uh, philosophy I think I told you about working on the bad project and seeing the quote from John Lennon on the wall about... uh, the feeling that many songwriters have, that they are merely a conduit through which these songs come into being in this realm, in this uh, physical world that we have. And these songs come from another place, cosmic consciousness or some other part of the brain that's, that's connected to some type of creative muse, however you wish to describe it. I didn't want to trip up that process because it was after that that Michael had said the thing about you don't want to overthink it and you don't want to force it. I think I was sensitive to that because I understood that at a different level without Michael having to explain that to me. I would see these things develop and unfold and I would know that he would do some portion of a song. He might get the chorus and the hook 
And then he'd say, I've got to work on some more lyrics. And then he would kind of take some time away and then he'd come back potentially with verses or a bridge. I really value that about your working relationship with Michael, whereby other producers that Michael brought on might have wanted to include their own sound in the mix. Hearing from you that you wanted to just bring out Michael's own raw inner vision for his work is just really, really, really cool. I've got a question about a song you may or may not know much about, but it was actually a Teddy Riley track that didn't make it on the album. It ended up coming out, I think, as a Blackstreet song later with Teddy's other band. The song's called Joy. Teddy's talked about it having been recorded but never released. And I'm just wondering if you remember that song, Joy, and how complete it is in terms of its vocals. Without doing research, I can't say that I'm familiar with it. There was something interesting that happened when Teddy Riley came on board. Obviously, Teddy and Michael had been speaking before he showed up in Los Angeles. Teddy showed up, and I think he had a dat, and there was something like 10 tracks on this dat, and they were all basically grooves. Many of those grooves, if not, well, let me put it this way, all of the songs of Teddy Riley's that he brought to The Dangerous Project originated from those grooves that he had that he brought to the Dangerous Project. That was a dad Michael just absolutely fell in love with. I cannot tell you how many times he'd say, oh, Matt, I lost that dad. Could you make me another copy of that that Teddy Riley dad with all those tracks? And I used to have to make copies of this dad because I don't know where they went, if Michael would leave them at his home. He had a condo for a while that he would stay at for convenience sake in the Los Angeles area, in the San Fernando Valley. I don't know if he would put them somewhere and then just forget where he had put them. But I constantly had to make copies of this one particular dat. If you listen to that dat, you will hear the basic idea and groove of, I think, all of the tracks Teddy Riley brought to the Dangerous album. And then what Michael was doing was Michael was coming up with melodies and lyrics and the rest of the component that was making those tracks that were just basically groove tracks, making them into really completed, fully thought out songs. It does sound like there's kind of a marked shift in the way that the Dangerous album was conceived versus the Bad album, because with the Bad album, you had this system of Michael working in his own home studio, coming up with all the demos, which were then being ferried over to Quincy. Whereas what we're talking about here is Michael having people bring things to him. Teddy Riley arriving with a dat full of songs and Brian Loren coming up with songs in another studio. What do you think is the reason for that change in process? Was it a lack of self-confidence or was it Michael being very concerned about commercial success and making sure that he was current? What do you think was driving that change in the way that this album was being put together compared to the previous one? I think it was Michael's desire for exploration, to be able to do as much exploration as possible. 
because he had Billy Batrell bringing in and developing tracks and songs, and some of them they wrote together. Billy developed the ideas, and then Michael would comment on the track, and then Billy would develop it further. And that was kind of the thing, is that Michael got to work with several different teams of people that were all developing different ideas, and Michael was able to oversee all of them simultaneously because Michael would uh, was one of the, the things during the Dangerous album. Uh, you talked about the pros and the cons, and the cons was there was only one Michael. You know, everybody who was working in the studio, if it was myself with Brad Buxer or Bill Petrell, Bruce or Teddy Riley, Brian Laurent, everyone was saying, wow, when can we get Michael in here? We want to play this for Michael. We want to see where this stands and uh, what he wants to do next. So there was only one Michael to go around. That was one of the downsides is that he had these teams of people all creating and they would get things to a certain point and then they would say, wow, now we need Michael to give us the next uh, pointer, the next uh, direction. And do we take it here or do we take it there? Or does Michael go away and now uh, does he work up some uh, melody and lyric ideas and come back and lay them on the track the way the track currently exists? Because that's the way all of these things developed. Unless a track was brought in as a finished demo, we were bringing these things through the process. And each of the teams was bringing these songs through the process on an ongoing basis. The studios were cranking away, but Michael could only be in one place. And if Michael had some other urgent thing that he wasn't able to make it into the studio at all, personal issue or uh, some other demand of a business nature, Michael wasn't available and the work would go on as much as possible. So there was an occasional moment of, well, let's put that away and let's see if we can create something else and experiment. Uh, there was a, a great attempt to use the downtime in a creative fashion and maybe come up with some new sounds, developing new sounds or something else like a new groove idea that could be presented to Michael. Michael liked the idea of there was so much work being done. Kind of like the model, if I can go back to the Thomas Edison uh, developing the concept of the research laboratory. Thomas Edison could have several teams, each working to develop a different invention. And that's kind of what Michael was doing. Could you tell us a bit more about the role of this chap you mentioned, Buzz Cohen? Yes, Buzz Cohen was a writer. He came from television, and I know he wrote for different uh, specials, different... I don't know where he originated from. And I can only imagine it was in the early years of the Jackson 5. They did a lot of work in television. Buzz would kind of come on board. In fact, he came on and he was a collaborator on Gone Too Soon. There were certain things that Michael could write very, very effectively a lot of the story type of songs. When Michael was venturing out into areas of writing that was a little bit more, he wanted someone else to bounce ideas off, especially when you're writing a ballad. How you construct the lyrics in a ballad are a lot different than how you construct the lyrics in a pop song. 
a rock song because the choice of words is so critical. There's so much more riding on the emotional connection of the lyric. It's just a more delicate type of thing. You know, a rock and roll thing or a dance track, uh, you know, it's kind of a slamming thing. It's kind of a hard-hitting thing. And when Michael wanted to explore something that was a more sensitive area, he would sometimes work with someone such as Buzz to help flush out whatever it was that was needed in terms of the collaborative element of the lyric. Now, Brian Loren, you mentioned that he was working on quite a lot of songs for the project, but none of them made them on. What do you remember about those songs, and why do you think they didn't make the cut in the end? Well, I think what uh, Michael's feelings about those songs were is that they were really good. They were really funky. They had great grooves. My belief is that when he heard the direction Teddy Riley was going, Teddy Riley was more at the leading edge of a different style of music. The funky sound Brian Loren brought, as good as it was, was something that was a little bit more familiar. It already had existed in different uh, reiterations. Morris Day in the time being another Minneapolis band, as well as Prince. The funk thing is the funk thing. And when you hear it, you know it. Michael was just always exploring what was new, what was different, what hasn't been heard yet. That is where Teddy Riley had the edge. I had a conversation with someone at Epic Records one time, and they said to me, this was just in a, in a casual conversation. And he said, well, you know, you were actually involved in one of the, the first major hip-hop records. And I had to think for a minute. And I said, you really think so? And they said, well, yes, because the New Jack Swing thing kind of led the public into the hip-hop style. I'm not saying hip-hop did not exist before that, but Michael kind of brought forth that sensibility much more to a wider audience by incorporating the work that Teddy Riley was doing. And the stuff that Brian Loren was doing was really good groove-wise. There wasn't any lacking in his ability or talent. It's just much in the same way the stuff that Billy Batrell was working on was he was really exploring an area of music that was also new, that really hadn't been heard before. When you listen to, well, Black or White is an example. The song Dangerous started with uh, Bill Batrell, and then later, uh, closer to the end, uh, Teddy Riley came on board that song. Who is it? Those were veins of rock music that weren't the typical rock songs of that era, much in that uh, Beat It was a rock song, but it wasn't really typical of what most rock bands were doing. It was just a little bit kind of a original tangent that was coming off of the main entity. Michael wanted that stuff that was just 
feeling like no one has heard a song that sounds like this before. Just wanted to piggyback off that question around Brian Loren because my interview with Brian Loren and Matt, I'd really encourage you to to listen to it one day if you ever get the chance because he was, uh, oh boy, um, probably one of the more unique people that I've interviewed. He, um, I don't shy away from saying this because most of our listeners have <laughs> commented on it, but he came across an interview pretty, I would say, bitter would be a good way to put it. Not just because of what happened with his songs not making it onto the album, but he alleged in the interview that a number of songs he worked on from Michael, portions of them ended up in other Michael songs that he wasn't credited for. And he named them. He talked about songs on the History album. He talked about Morphine. But he was naming tracks and saying, oh, yeah, I worked on a portion of a song in, you know, in the early nineties. And then that ended up being on an album 10 years later and Michael didn't credit me. And when he was saying those things, it also made me reflect on famously Brad Buxer was perhaps not credited to the extent that he should have been for songs like stranger in Moscow. I'd like your take on that sort of thing. Did you ever observe Michael take older material and then sort of put it in newer songs and then maybe not honor the original people that worked on it? Or what's your take on that whole thing? Well, that's an interesting question because very often when you work creatively, sometimes you could say uh, your ideas are borrowed and you are not uh, given credit for something that you did originate. I was never aware of a particular instance, so I can't say that that was a conscious thing or a subconscious thing or however those things kind of evolve. But I think that is something that very often happens, especially in music. And there have been some very famous cases where lawsuits have been brought dealing with this very subject. Some idea is introduced at some point in time, and then lo and behold, many years later, someone has uh, a song that incorporates, if not the same elements, similar elements, or sometimes that thing that is originally done is the springboard for taking something of that nature and taking it further and developing the idea to a further extent, yet it's based on the original. I can see that happening. Yes, only because the number of people that worked with Michael, the number of songs Michael himself wrote. There was a point in time where I saw Michael borrow from an earlier era of himself. And I didn't point it out. I didn't know if that was something that was conscious or subconscious. But I understand what uh, Brian Loren is speaking to. I uh, happened to run into him at a, an industry event. I agree with your assessment. And he voiced some of those very same thoughts to me. And I said, well, that may well be. 
uh, you know, I don't have any way to prove or disprove, or I can't speak up for anyone in this instance of where the kernel of something originated and then uh, was at some other point in time it taken to some other use in some other place. I think that's something that a lot of creative people, I think it's kind of one of those, what would you say? It's a kind of as a, uh, an occupational hazard. I risk any time you do that kind of creative thing. That's kind of the dark side of creativity. So often someone borrows from someone else. Now, there was the, the case of, uh, will you be there? There was the uh, Italian artist who brought a lawsuit and did say, this is my song because I was there when Michael was writing and we were first recording, uh, Will You Be There? I was brought in to testify in that case. I didn't know what they were referring to until it was very, very near the very end of the, the trial that finally I heard the song to which they were referring, which the Italian uh, songwriter uh, had, had written and recorded. And I said, wow, yeah, it is the same. Musically, it is the same. But it's also, too, in a genre or a musical motif, a style. It's kind of in that gospel style. And when you're doing that kind of gospel style, those are kind of the logical choices of where the track would go and the feel of where it would go. And then, of course, the melody over that is, is kind of logical when you have that rhythm section and those other elements reinforcing it. And I was surprised. And this was only at the very end of that entire legal proceeding. But I had to testify that, in fact, Michael at no time mentioned or brought in any recording. We never heard it. But they both basically wrote the same stylized song and melody. You get into such gray areas that are difficult to prove. But none of this would surprise me if, in fact, something of this nature did occur. Are there any hidden gems from the dangerous era that the public haven't heard that you hope one day can be appreciated? Well, I think the things that were the hidden gems from the Dangerous album did come out. Several of them were on history, and then several others were in fact on, um, I want to say maybe the Ultimate Collection. I can't remember where Monkey Business uh, surfaced. Yeah, that was on the Ultimate Collection. I actually really love that track. <laughs> it's like a, a very cool, fun, quirky track. Those things that got to that point, I don't think there's anything that's really a fully completed, fully developed song. Because the ones that were, I believe, have come out. Now, I'm just curious about touring. Michael obviously went on a world tour after the Dangerous album came out, the Dangerous World Tour. Were you ever involved to any degree with any of his tours? I was involved, generally speaking, when tour prep was being done and something would need to be generated for the musicians. Like, we need a mix that shows the guitar player what the guitar part is. So maybe you need to, like, pull up this mix, do a mix of this song, 
uh, you don't have to put the vocal in or, you know, just put the lead in and none of the backgrounds and just turn the guitar up a little bit so now the guitarist can study the thing. I would do a lot of that prep stuff. Sometimes when there was incidental musical elements that were used in the course of the tour, I would work on that. A kind of a hidden unknown fact is that prior to the bad tour, I was approached because I came from mixing live rock and roll. I mixed live rock and roll for about nine, almost 10 years before I moved to Los Angeles. I was approached. At that time, Chris Carell was working in the studio with Michael on the Synclavier. Chris said, look, I'm going out on the tour and Michael doesn't know that you used to mix live music. Uh, would you be interested in going out on a live tour? And I said, Chris, thank you very much for asking me. But it took me so long and I worked so hard to get into working in studios in Los Angeles. When you go out on a tour with Michael, you commit yourself to 18 months of touring. I said, I can't take that much time off in my career and away from my family to go on the road. So I did pass up the opportunity to live mix probably one of the biggest, most famous tours. When I go online, that's like the number two biggest or most famous tour. But I don't regret it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have had opportunities to do what I did in the studio. Well, you recorded and engineered the songs that were played on that tour, so <laughs> yeah, so, that's, that's a pretty good consolation. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and then when Michael came back, the first person he called when he wanted to go into the studio was myself, and especially later when we talk about uh, history, there was that break in the middle of the history tour where we jumped back in the studio, but that's getting ahead of things. Yeah, we're, we're going to get to that. The work you were doing for the audio elements in the tours, so let's say the Dangerous Tour in particular, was that happening back in a studio or were you ever present at any of the rehearsals? I was pretty much in the studio. I remember an occasion or two where I had to, for some reason, visit where they were doing the rehearsals because what they would do is they would uh, rent out a, an airplane hangar or a soundstage, a, a movie soundstage, so that they could fully stage the rehearsals because you had so many special effects. You had dancers and choreography, and you had special effects and pyro and lasers and lighting. So they needed a full-on, very large venue to do it. Once or twice I would go and I would visit and I'd see what was going on, and I'd say, wow, I'm sure happy that, you know, these people are doing a great job, and I kind of left that world behind me when I stepped into the studio end of things. I wasn't missing it. I had no regrets. And as Michael was edging towards going on tour for Dangerous, we know from looking back, I guess, on Michael's life that the periods of time that he was under the most pressure and stress was when he was preparing for tours, whether it be Dangerous, History, This Is It, which ultimately, you know, he he, he died from, from preparing for that tour. Did you notice any changes in his behavior in terms of handling stress when preparing for going on the road for Dangerous? 
Well, in, in each case, uh, no, I wasn't involved in the This Is It concert prep. But uh, because at the same time they were doing uh, tour prep, we were also in the final phases of either finishing the album and potentially preparing for what would be the first single release. There also could be running concurrently some music video project, which would accompany the release of the first single. So he would be involved potentially in two or three entirely different episodes or levels of work. I know that he would be very tired. I know he was having trouble sleeping and resting because of his degree of uh, perfectionism. When you're trying to finish the album, you, you want everything to be right and, and to be correct. I can't say there was a big shift, but he got really, really serious and really, really focused. Because if you're on an album like Dangerous, that uh, I think I worked on for about two and a half years, you know, there were times during the album production where the attitude was much more relaxed. But when it got to this final portion, it was not a relaxed atmosphere. Everyone was under the gun. The other uh, component that I did on the Dangerous album was Michael wanted uh, some other types of sound sources, segues, if you will. I was working on a digital workstation, so I was getting... Uh, a uh, request from Michael that he'd liked something of a certain nature. For example, the opening to Black and White on the album. That was recreated in the music video with actors, Macaulay Culp and, and George Wayne. That was something that uh, Billy Betrell had kind of set up the recording session to do that. What I did was I went in and Billy recorded everything, but he recorded everything in a traditional recording studio. And I went in with my recording system and I recorded all of the elements in the room with the young gentleman, I forgot his name, who played the son. Billy played the part of the father. I was able to create the Foley work, the sound effect work, the sound design work, if you want to say it, to set up that scenario and that was all done in the workstation that I did. That was kind of an intensive thing, but Michael wanted a certain thing. And I, again, kind of was able to crawl inside the machinery of what he was thinking and create something for him that even Billy Betrell, I mean, Billy Betrell uh, paid me the greatest compliment when he said, you know, that whole intro to Black or White, that could have come off a little bit corny, but he goes, he said, Matt, the way you did it, it just like had this stark realism. I remember someone in the studio said that when they played the album at home and the father is yelling at the son, they said their dog gets really upset that the father is yelling at the son and their dog is reacting. And I'm saying, well, if I'm fooling dogs <laughs> who have much more sensitive hearing than us humans, then I guess I'm doing something right. That was something that creatively, I knew how Michael wanted that to come across. And it was the same thing for Heal the World, where there's that beautiful opening. Then there's the little girl that talks about the world. 
in you know making the world a better place. At one point, we had some children come into the studio, and Michael was in the control room, and I'm in the studio with some kids, and getting directions from Michael. No, have him say this. Have him do this. Have him do that. And the very reason why he wanted that children's component or attitude is that when children speak from the heart, it's absolutely 100% honesty. You can take a two or three year old and you can you can ask them something. Uh, you know, you can do you can create something or you know, mom can make a great meal and say, "How did you like that?" And you know, the child will say, "It was terrible. I didn't like it." They will tell you very very honestly and it comes from the heart and they have not yet aged to the point where they learn they have to answer certain questions a certain way because a certain answer is expected of them. That's something that happens as you mature from the child to the older phase of being an adolescent. And that was something that Michael realized and understood, and it's what he truly loved about children. So when he said, Matt, this is what we need. We need, we need a, a, a child. We need a child's voice talking about the world. And I said, okay. And he said, and you know, it can say stuff like, you know, we got to make the world a better place, but you know, it's got to be the child doing it. Unlike black or white, where the boy who played the part of the son, he was actually an actor. He was a trained actor that came in and did that. And he did a good job. Michael knew he couldn't get an actor or an actress, a child actor to come across with the honesty and the sincerity that would make that opening of that song really be effective. So I was tasked with Michael telling me, now you've got to make this absolutely sincere and honest and authentic. It's got to be real. So I said, okay, Michael, I'll do my best. So I must have recorded a hundred children and I couldn't go up to these children. I, I, I went to schools. I went to friends, relatives that had children. I went to every source of how I could access children of a certain age range. I couldn't say to them, okay, now say this line. Because it would come off like they were just saying a line. So what I had to do was I had to engage them in a conversation and then steer it to the topic of the subject of Heal the World. I had worked and worked and worked so hard. And I finally got to a uh, relative of my wife and they had a young daughter. And so I visited them. We started talking about the environment, and the young girl was talking about, oh, yeah, we talk about this in school. I said, oh, good. Well, what do you talk about? And I kind of steered her in the direction to where she started saying, well, you know, something about, you know, how we're ruining the earth and we're throwing garbage in the ocean and, and in the earth, and it isn't right. And Out of this child's mouth, with complete honesty and sincerity, she went into this thing and talked about 
the environment and how we have to make the world a better place for our children's children. <laughs> and I'm, I'm there with my little recording system and I have headphones on. And as soon as she finished talking, I said, that's it. I've got it. Because it was coming from her heart. It wasn't at all coached or manufactured or acted or scripted. And when I went back and I was in the workstation, I was editing it. I said, okay, this is what I've got, Michael. And then I played it. And then a couple places, the girl stumbles and stutters. I said, I can take that out. He goes, no, no, leave it in. That's exactly what how a child would say it. They would be searching for words. So I said, okay, that's the way we'll do it. That ended up being what we used. Ironically, the young girl, Ashley, wasn't credited on the album when the album first came out. Some of the credits on the first release of the album were incomplete. So I made a phone call to Michael's office and I said, you know, the girl who did this, she didn't get her name on the album and she's probably telling all her friends, you know, that that's her on this record. I said, it would be really nice if something could be done. And uh, the person who was uh, Michael Jackson's uh, assistant who ran the office operation said, oh, okay, uh, let me talk to Mike about that. Let me see what we can do. So if you watch the Michael Jackson at the Super Bowl, when he does the halftime, and they do Heal the World, Ashley, the little girl that's on the record, is the one just to Michael's right-hand side, standing right next to him. And that was something that made me feel so good. At least there was a form of acknowledgement. She could tell all her friends to watch the Super Bowl. Beautiful story. Wow. Yeah, and um, it's, uh, it is a lovely story. And it's, uh, it's an interesting song to consider Heal the World because it kind of exemplifies Michael's view of the world. But when the album comes out, it's kind of at the time when the press is really starting to turn on Michael in a big way. Although the album is very successful, in terms of the press coverage, the album itself is very much drowned out by a series of controversies which begin with the blowback against the black or white video. And then the tour begins and the press is completely attacking Michael's appearance. One of the UK tabloids runs a big front page picture calling him Scarface. What was it like for you as somebody that was very friendly with Michael at that time and worked with him very closely to witness the way that he was treated when he ventured out into the world? When you are with someone over a long period of time and there is this slow transformation it's something that isn't as apparent and noticeable that was something that all of a sudden when he did come onto the world stage and people hadn't seen him in a while there was that apparent noticeable difference Having seen it evolve, it wasn't such a big issue from where I was viewing it. But in fact, 
Michael was reacting to the uh, vitiligo issue that he had, which some people, unfortunately, refuse to believe. But in fact, that was in fact the case because I visually saw that at an earlier stage. I saw that uh, when we were working on the bad album, and he pointed it out, and he was very embarrassed by it. Because if you remember, the issue of uh, Michael when he was in the uh, Jackson 5 and the Jacksons, he was the person who got picked on by older siblings. And if you read uh, in the history of it, his father as well, uh, his father making comments about his physical appearance. This is someone who has been subjected to this quite intensely for a long period of time. I can understand Michael wanted this appearance that was without flaw. Everyone wants to be the ideal, perfect thing. It's the whole cosmetic industry, you know, survives on conditioning people to believe that they have to look a certain way. It's that same kind of thing that he grew up with. I understood that. But I also kind of said, yeah, I can see what it is. Michael has become so successful at this point. He's no longer the underdog that people are cheering on, that people are saying, yes, we want that guy to succeed because he's been working so hard for so long. He's had that moment. And he has become the largest thing, the biggest, the most successful entertainer in the world. And what happens when you go through and you transition from being the guy that's number two and trying harder to be number one and you become number one? Then uh, it's inevitable that the press, the media, the tabloids start looking at things to find out What can we use to support our media operation? The tabloids, I know, are especially vicious in other countries. Michael mentioned England and Australia being two that have tabloid uh, journalism that's quite brutal. That's the way the world is. You mentioned Michael's skin condition, vitiligo, which obviously is such a debilitating condition for him to have had, especially as an African-American. And so when we saw him in public, clearly he had a lot of makeup on, evening out his skin, as Karen Fay has put it. When he was in the studio, did he do the same thing or was he more relaxed there and, may, and came in without makeup? And is that how you noticed the vitiligo? Or? Uh, no, Michael actually pointed it out to me the time that the subject first came up and we were discussing it, there was another musician there. Michael was was saying, yeah, I've got this thing. And it was on his arm, close to his wrist. He said, yeah, look, look, it's, you know, he considered that a blemish, something that was unattractive. When he was in the studio, he never wore makeup. If there was a situation where he was going to be videotaped for an interview or photographed, Yes, Karen Faye would probably be there and and do the makeup. But he was never made up on a daily basis. He would always wear long sleeve shirts because that would cover this one area physically. But he didn't go to the extent of having makeup to hide it. Yeah, I think that's really powerful testimony because obviously the untrue narrative that the press pushes is Michael wanted to be other than what he was. He didn't want to be 
black. He wanted to have lighter skin. But for him to have a personal conversation with you and be ashamed by his darker skin changing really affirms the fact that this was a probably a traumatizing thing for him as a black man for his skin to be changing in that way. It was, especially when members of your own family point this out as a flaw. And when you're in those very formative years, when you're very young, I mean, this can be tremendously traumatic. The entire issue with uh, the plastic surgery. There's a uh, comment uh, that uh, uh, his father made one time you know, about the size of his nose. I mean, oh my gosh, you're a teenager and you get a pimple. How self-conscious are you if you just get a single pimple? <laughs> and here there's family members pointing out other flaws or other things to make fun of you or pick on you about. That's coming from the circle that's closest to you. And of course, that's kind of the sibling rivalry thing too. There's some of that that always occurs in that respect. But those are the things that, you know, there is something about us as humans, as we develop, the one place where you always seek approval is from your family members, especially your parents. And I think that's true of any human being on the planet. There was a whole lot of things going on psychologically that were, I know, difficult for Michael. Because he was held up to be the greatest and the best. And here he was the, he was the front man for the Jackson 5 and the Jacksons. So when you're that focal point, it's only accentuated all the more. Of course, in addition to the scrutiny over his appearance, the thing that happens during the Dangerous Tour is that the allegations emerge. They sort of explode into the press just as Michael is beginning the second leg of the Dangerous Tour. Do you remember how you heard about what was going on and what your immediate reaction was? I don't recall how I first heard of it. I don't know if it was in the media in some fashion. I remember Michael's reaction. I mean, he was so, so terribly wounded by that. This would occur in the way it occurred. And in order to have the full picture of that, you really have to go back and study the facts and I'm not one to be able to clarify legal points. But when you go back and you can factually look at what occurred over the course of time that those first allegations were made, I mean, it's a horrible thing to have to experience, to be the brunt of something that uh, is such a horrific accusation. And when you speak about Michael being wounded by it, I mean, how did that manifest itself? Was it in conversations with you or was it that you witnessed a change in his demeanor? What did you observe about him around that time? I think both of those things. If you watch the black or white video and you look very closely at how Michael carried himself, the expression the joy that he was exuding, the whole theme of it doesn't matter if you're black or white, that 
kind of love that he was trying to project. There's a way to overcome our differences. Uh, this doesn't have to be a uh, point of uh, contention. When you look at that and you see the joy and the happiness on his face in that music video, that's the last time that you see that at that level with that purity of happiness in his soul, just beaming. That was the last time I think I saw Michael in that light. Once the allegations came out and then the press and then the, everything uh, happened, Michael was traumatized by it and had to suffer through that. He was just not that same person that he was before having that happen. You can almost compare it to uh, someone who suffers some extreme trauma and then they suffer PTSD. They suffer some result of the stress that's left as a result of the trauma. I don't want to say that was a diagnosis on my part, but you could see that same kind of reflection of he wasn't the same person. As time went on, he did improve. His demeanor did improve, but uh, the immediate after effect was he was very sad. The conversations that we would have in the studio prior to all of this, Michael would say things like, you know, why are there these things in the world that are so terrible? Why is there this famine? The whole reason for we are the world. Why can't humanity see that we're all basically the same as human beings? And why can't we help each other? Why does there have to be this war? Why does there have to be this genocide? Why does there have to be this evil component, the dark side of humanity? These are the questions that sometimes, you know, we'd get in a conversation and he would, he would talk about that. This was kind of like uh, that being visited upon him him as a person. That was a difficult thing for him to have to be the focal point of it. Was there ever a time when you questioned whether it could be true, or did you always have complete faith in Michael? I had faith in Michael. I had to think hard about the allegation because, number one, it is so horrifically disgusting and deviate, but the interesting thing that I have found is that when people are interviewed in the entertainment business and those people who have worked closest with Michael for the longest amount of time, I don't know anyone that has come out and said they believe the accusations. Because when you get to know the real person and you see how he conducts himself and his life, and the other things that he does, nobody talks a lot about the philanthropic work that he has done over his lifetime. But you see these other things in when he did have Neverland, you know, opening it up to the Make-A-Wish Foundation and all other things, uh, helping sick children, just countless instances of this. It's kind of like this is something isn't making sense when you look at the whole picture. Is Michael unusual? Yes. Is he this other person that's being portrayed in this horrendous way? No, he's not. You know, these things don't, uh, they don't follow logical thought. 
he is misunderstood. Yes, he does have those eccentric things about him, not having a childhood, desiring to always have one. There is that side of it. Were you ever worried about your own career or reputation? Were you worried at any point about continuing to be associated with him? No. Because the people in the entertainment business that I knew that were closest to Michael also held the same view. At one point in the whole development of, you know, this thing went on for years, I was asked, would I uh, be willing to uh, somehow, in a legal sense, if I was called on, would I be willing to uh, support uh, or speak to Michael's character? And when I was asked, that came with a caveat. They said, now, think about this before you answer this. But was this something you would be willing to do? And I said, okay, let me give it some serious thought. And I thought, no, I, I have no reservation about it. I know him well enough as a person. That's not playing a part in my decision-making process. It's like being a parent. Uh, you know, there's things that you know about your child or your family member, and uh, you know when there comes a time when you have to stand up for them because what's right is right. If there's something that's not right, maybe there's a way to deal with that. But coming out and trying to do things in a sensational fashion isn't the way. I know Michael regretted the settlement in the first case, and then the next time he said that he would refuse to do that. Oh, so he told you he regretted the settlement? He did. I mean, I think he publicly announced that too. He said, you know, at the time he wanted to get on with his life, get on with his tour, get on with his work, get on with whatever the next music project was, and that was the expeditious way to deal with it. And... Later, he said, well, you know, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do because someone used that fact as leverage the next time around. And the next music project was History, which is viewed by many fans as almost like the musical reaction to what had just happened to him, this horror that had just engulfed his life for the preceding year or so. Can you talk a bit about the history project? Well, this is a really ironic and, and interesting story because the beginning of the history project, I had worked for an entire week preparing equipment, moving many of Michael's recordings to the recording studio in preparation to begin what was going to be the history album. And now this time, it wasn't like the dangerous thing where we were going to start something that was going to be a greatest hits collection and then change the course midstream. This one, they said, no, 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 there is going to be new songs, but we're going to definitely do the greatest hits this time. So I had to do a lot of prep work for the entire week preceding. And on the Monday morning that we were supposed to start the history project, the Earthquake in Los Angeles called the Northridge Earthquake struck at somewhere around 5.30 in the morning. And it was an incredibly intense earthquake. And I lived so close to the epicenter 
within six or seven miles of the epicenter of that quake. It was tremendous because of the nature of the type of shift that the Earth took in that, I think it was called a, a shear fracture, a vertical shear of the Earth's mantle. The shaking was unbelievably strong. Here in earthquake territory, they always say to be earthquake prepared, in your mind, if you feel an earthquake is coming, walk and stand in the nearest doorway. I was, of course, asleep in bed in the morning. There wouldn't have been any way I could have walked across the room to get into a doorway. The ground was shaking so incredibly violently. I would have just, it would have knocked me to the floor. It felt like the corner of the home of our house was being lifted up two or three feet and being dropped over and over again because, of course, I was so close to the epicenter. The electricity went out, and I got a transistor radio and tuned it, and they said, uh, you know, they started reporting on the earthquake. I opened the uh, shades on the bedroom window and looked out and as the sun started to come up and daylight started to show, I could see smoke billowing from different locations. And what had happened was uh, natural gas lines had ruptured and there were fires burning. And I looked out the window and I saw it looked like, you know, someone was dropping bombs or something. They were in a war zone. No electricity. Everybody is totally freaked out out of their mind. It's so intense. And I turned to my wife and I said, well, I don't think I'm going to work this morning. <laughs> so that project did not start the day that we thought it would. And uh, because if you're familiar with the nature of earthquakes, after you have a major seismic event, you have aftershocks which are smaller versions of the earthquake, but magnitudes less. But nonetheless, the earth shakes. My house was just like, everything that was on a shelf was on the floor. It was a huge uh, mess. And uh, I didn't have electricity and I didn't have any telephone. And I wasn't able to communicate with anyone. This was pre-internet, actually pre-cell phone. And water, there basically wasn't uh, running water either. About six or seven days later, the phone rang. And I said, oh my goodness, they got the telephone working. Because we still didn't have electricity. And I answered the phone, and it was Bruce Wedeen saying, Matt, I go, Bruce, Matt. We're not going to be doing the, the history project in Los Angeles. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I know that we can't immediately go into the studio and work. So he goes, we've made arrangements. The album uh, project is moving to New York. Uh, we've got a studio in New York City. And I said, oh, Bruce, uh, I don't know how I can move to New York. Uh, my daughter was very young at that point. Let's see, she was born in 88. This was 94. So she was, what, six or so? And how can I 
leave my family and move to another city for what I know is going to be an extended period of time. I said, Bruce, I don't know how this is going to work out. He goes, okay, well, I just want to let you know that and I'll get back to you. That was how I found out they had restored the telephone service. Electricity came on shortly after that in another day. And then a few days later, we got our running water back. This is how seriously damaged Los Angeles and the suburbs were. Buildings had collapsed and studios were in ruin. Homes were destroyed. So not knowing what was to happen next, I get a call from Bruce half a week later. And he says, okay, we've worked out some things. I've talked with Brad Sunberg. And we've worked it out so that if you agree to this, we're going to move the project to New York and you and Brad Sunberg can split the duties because Brad Sunberg had a family as well. You and Brad Sunberg can split the duties of working on the project in New York. I said, fine, that works for me. Because Brad Sunberg had worked on the dangerous project, he was up to speed on everything that one needed to be up to speed on in terms of workflow, what the preparation work needed to be, what the technical side of things were. So at that point, the project moved to New York. Brad and I would take two to three week shifts and whoever wasn't in New York was in LA to do whatever component needed to be to support the work happening in New York. If something had to be sent from L.A. to New York, there was someone in L.A. to do it. Now, with the aftershocks, the thing that happens when you have a seismic event and you have these aftershocks, you never know how strong the aftershock is going to be. It starts as a subtle a vibration, and then it can build up into, you know, all of a sudden the walls and the buildings start rattling and swaying. That alone is something that will rattle your nerves because your heart goes into your throat every time one of these things starts. So for everyone on the production team to be in a studio and then have an aftershock start, people would freak out and leave and run outside. So there wasn't any way that there would be any peace of mind if we tried to continue to do the studio work in Los Angeles. Everyone said, no, we, we've got to actually go to another city. We went to the Hit Factory in New York, an amazing studio. It was a great studio to work at. They were able to cover every need, technically, staff-wise, accommodate us in, in whatever respect. The official start of the album was delayed a couple months in Brad Sunberg was the first leg in New York. So when you began the Dangerous Project, you remember the first, the earliest songs Michael brought were They Don't Care About Us, Feed the World, and Earth Song. Likewise, on the History Project, what do you remember being the early tracks, the ones that were worked on right at the beginning of the project? the song Stranger in Moscow, which is a song that Brad Buxer had worked on with Michael on the road. They had a kind of studio in a box type of arrangement where they could roll in road cases and it had enough recording equipment so that in a hotel room they could 
record demos for songs and Michael could write and, and Brad could work with him in that context. The first month or two, we were doing a lot of preparation work, laying a lot of the groundwork for tracks. There were things that Renee Moore and Bruce Wedeen were starting some ideas. And one of those points, probably a month and a half in, Brad showed up in New York. And I worked with him on Stranger in Moscow. And while we were at the Hit Factory principally, we were across the street from the Sony recording studios. Sony had a uh, building that occupied not only offices, but also uh, several recording studios and mastering studios. So my first uh, work that I did was across the street at the Sony Music Studio with Brad Buxer on the song Stranger in Moscow. So I worked for a couple weeks with uh, Brad on that song. And then at that change-up, when Brad Sundberg was then going to relieve me, at that same time, they had located another recording engineer that was going to come on board because uh, Brad Sundberg was not going to step in as a recording engineer, but more as a uh, production supervisor, which was much of the work that I was doing and helping organize. And that was Eddie Delena. Eddie Delena was a guy from L.A. He was uh, familiar with Brad Buxer. So he came on board and he took over the work that I had been doing in the studio with Brad Buxer. And I was very much relieved that uh, they were able to get someone who could uh, step in and fill in, basically in my place, step into my shoes and take over work that I had started in the studio that allowed Brad Sundberg to continue focusing on being the production supervisor type of person. Because at the same time, we started adding other producers and songwriters as time went on. Other people came on board the project. You mentioned earlier about how after the allegations, it was like joy went out of him. Did he seem as engaged as he always had been? with the work or did he seem like he was maybe a bit jaded or a bit falling out of love with the whole thing? No, he was engaged, but he was kind of engaged at a little bit different level. I think you mentioned when you, you introduced the uh, history project that it was Michael, uh, what was the word that you used? Almost like his musical reaction to what happened to him. Yes, that is a good term. In fact, that's basically what I viewed. And he was committed to doing good work, but also to use the expression of that music to allow himself some creative space to have an outlet to react to those things that he had experienced. That was... To a great extent, the tone of the album, and it manifested itself in uh, several ways. I forget who it was that said this to me, but it was a fan who said to me years ago that the message of history that they took away from it was disc one is this was what I gave you, and disc two was this is how you thanked me. 
what do you mean when you say that that it manifested itself in different ways that kind of anger that way of using the music to react to what happened to him well i don't think it was quite as simple as this is what i gave you and this is what you gave me because that i interpret that to mean a very broad sense it was really michael working through using the album as an emotional outlet because when you look at the songs, Tabloid Junkie, DS, you really hear Michael venting. How else would he be able to express the hurt that he was feeling? It's an angry album. I mean, there's songs on it screaming this time around in particular, I think might be the first times Michael ever swore on record. And it was pretty shocking to actually hear with the lyrics like this time around I'm taking no shit it's like okay this is a different Michael than we'd heard before the gloves are off (laughs) yeah yeah it was like you had mentioned also they don't care about us I think that took on a new meaning for Michael the ones that you mentioned this time around and scream most definitely but also too there was just not anger expressed Uh, There was also much more of the vulnerability that Michael embodied. Childhood. Have you seen my childhood? I mean, that is basically the most autobiographical song I think Michael has done and uh, so beautifully executed. It's truly a, a great track, wonderfully orchestrated. And smile, because Michael was such an enormous fan of Charlie Chaplin. And Michael was very much aware Charlie Chaplin went into exile and uh, moved to Switzerland. But yet he also knew that Charlie Chaplin gave so much to the world in terms of himself emotionally as that actor that played the little tramp. Michael used the term pathos in the silent era. Charlie Chaplin really played that totally sympathetic, soft-hearted, kind person that seemed to get himself into situations that were um, very unforgiving. That was one of the songs that Michael truly, truly loved being able to do was Smile. Because deep down inside, that's what Michael truly harbored in his body and in his soul was that feeling about, you know, you have to look through all of the pain when you're an entertainer, regardless of how much pain you're experiencing. When you step on the stage, you have to put on a smile. You have to do it for your fans because that that's who you're creating everything for the fan base that supports you. And that's a truly deep feeling because he still had all those same questions. Uh, like in the song, uh, they don't care about us. Is it why, why do these things happen in the world? Why do people act this way? Why, why is this, mankind why does humanity have this self-destructive nature whatever this horrible entity is the native americans had a term for it 
wetiko. Wetiko is a is it's almost like it's a disease that infects. That is, uh, it's all of the worst qualities when they all come out in mankind, and you see them displayed, war, suffering on an enormous scale. Why does this have to happen in a world uh, where if we could collectively have a slightly different viewpoint and see things as a little bit more as we, we really are all the same inside as human beings. I mean, there's good and there's bad, but then it goes beyond bad to a level of evil or whatever you want to term ego or power goes to some people's minds and it distorts them terribly. There's been horrible people in the past that have done that to society. There is all of that anger, but at the same time, there is a lot of Michael trying to say, to illuminate the fact. Like Little Susie. Little Susie is about a child that's not uh, adequately cared for. You know, she fell down the stairs and is laying in a pool of blood. It's kind of a disgusting thing to put in a song. Gosh, don't we care enough about children that we want them to be cared for and them to receive the benefit of the joy and the love that they should have? You see a very, very complex part of Michael's personality. Yeah, you're right. The gloves did come off, but also to... He bared his soul at the same time. The album is very cohesive and very thematic in its approach. Apart from a couple of songs, which kind of feel like they fell onto the CD by accident from another album or something. So one of those is Come Together, which was a B-side that had already been released like 10 years earlier nearly. Do you remember what the logic was or whether it was ever explained why there was a decision made to put Come Together in the middle of this album. I remember Michael asking me that question. Michael said, come on in the studio, and he played the Come Together track. He cranked it up and we listened to it. He goes, is this good enough to put on the album? And I said, yeah, I think this is extremely well executed. This is as good of a Beatles cover as any Beatles cover I've ever heard. I mean, Michael really kind of gets to the core of it in his vocal performance. It's a fantastic vocal performance. I think there might be the fact that he was viewing the potential message of the song come together. Kind of like John Lennon's Imagine, well, why can't we come together? There's obviously another interpretation of John Lennon's version of Come Together that I know Michael did not intend. I was basing my reaction when he asked me the question strictly on listening to the performance that I had just heard in the moment in terms of, uh, you know, Michael's vocal performance and the work that Billy did on the track. And I said, yeah, this is good enough. Absolutely. The quality is there. I've always kind of felt like it's not a coincidence it's on the album at all because there's so much cryptic messaging in the album, in the song sequencing and the song inclusions. I don't think it's much of a coincidence that a Beatles cover is on that album. 
considering that by that point he owned the Beatles catalog. I think it was very much a statement, especially when it's <laughs> paired right next to the song Money. Um, <laughs> I think it was really a point of pride for him to put a Beatles cover on the album. Well, I know the execution of it was amazingly done. You mentioned about messaging and the, and the songs. There was one song on the, on the album to me that I really liked and I worked on. There was a place in the song where I, there was a chance to do some sound design work. I thought the song held so much potential in terms of messaging, but it didn't ever seem to realize that as everything came out in the world. And that was the song history, the title track. Because that was a song of such scope. When you look at all of the different elements and all of the different uh, people involved, basically pulling together, I mean, there was Boys to Men, there was, uh, I think, Andre Crouch was on that one. There was just a tremendous quantity. There was uh, Elmer Bernstein uh, Orchestra in there. Such an enormous amount of musicality and talent uh, that went into it. And the message itself, you know, the message itself is uh, you make your own history. Gosh, if more people could understand that message, that would be such a uh, revelation. There's a great story attached to that track, History, that sorts of really exemplifies the amazing level at which Michael and his team were working and it involves these recording machines called PCM three three. Are they three three four eights or thirty three forty eights? What would you call that machine? Yes, that machine is a forty eight track digital multi track. It's called a, a Sony thirty three forty eight. So there were so many elements to the song history. The team needed to stitch together four three three four eight machines, and. They had no idea how to do it, so they had to contact Sony and say, how would we go about stitching these four machines together to bring together all the elements of this track? Sony took days to come back, and in the meantime, there was a guy in the studio called Andrew Sheps who figured out how to do it. He managed to get the machines all stitched together and working in harmony, only for Sony to then ring the studio and say, don't bother, it's impossible, it can't be done. And that just tells you the amazing technical proficiency of the people that Michael surrounded himself with to work in the studio. And there is this narrative that's built up for many years uh, from music critics that Michael's music deteriorated and was of basically no value after he stopped working with Quincy, whereas in fact he was working at the real forefront of what was technically possible. It was pioneering stuff that he was doing on these albums like Dangerous and History. So what do you remember about that, about the people that Michael was uh, surrounded with at that time and about the technical abilities that they brought and the things that they were able to achieve on this album, the technical victories or the amazing feats that were achieved. I can only say this about your version of the story. You're absolutely correct because I was there. In fact, I can expand slightly in what they had to do to accomplish the number of tracks of material was Andrew Shep's 
who's gone on to have an illustrious career. He is a very talented guy and a very nice person as well. Uh, he was always a great asset to the team. We not only required four machines together, synchronized to what's digitally known as a word clock, which means ultra, ultra precise accuracy to a fraction, uh, to a ten thousandth of a second uh, uh, digital accuracy, in order to physically accomplish it, we had to have the four Sony machines in the hallway of the studio where Teddy Riley had been working. That was Larrabee North. The first two 48-track machines had all of the audio tracks running to Studio A, and the third and the fourth 48-track machines had all of their audio tracks running through Studio B. So we had not only four tape machines, but two automated SSL consoles in different studios doing the mix in order to accomplish this. And I remember, I remember Andrew saying, yeah, when, you know, when you're in Studio A, because that's the one where they were actually recording it to a two-track. He goes, yeah, when, when you're working on the mix in Studio A and you need something changed in Studio B, you pick up the telephone and on the intercom and you go, hey, can you turn up that fourth harmony uh, vocal part a little bit? <laughs> so they were, they were communicating back and forth on the telephone intercom between the two studios because they had to have two engineers. When you see the the SSL solid state logic console, it's a huge monster of a beast. And I think the consoles they had at Larrabee were each uh, 80 input consoles. That's a whole lot of signal flow, a whole lot of technology, a whole lot of coordination. You have to pull it off to the nth degree of not only technology, but also creativity. That's why I know how much went into the creation of the track and the song. And it's why I kind of think to myself, gee, it's kind of like the full potential of that song was never exploited. Because uh, when you get into that middle section and everybody's, the, the little voices are talking, I did the sound design work on, you know, all of the people talking about moments in history and people and times and dates. There was a huge desire on Michael's part to say, hey, wake up, everybody. Look, this is what you're capable of doing. This is what, you know, if you want to accomplish something, here's a song about, you know, you got to kind of take the reins, not only your own life, but your own direction. Grab a hold of all those things that have influenced you and harness them and, and create the vision and, and create that creative thing that can move you into the future, that can move you into the point of being one of these people that he's talking about and referring to in these great inventions and in these great people in history and these great moments. This is the potential that we have individually as human beings. And instead of using all of this tremendous, wonderful potential and the beauty of the world, instead of letting it all go to creating war and instruments of persecuting people or torturing or just uh, treating people poorly, 
suffering, why can't we get together and do something? And I think this is the biggest disappointment of when people examine Michael Jackson and Michael Jackson's life and some of the things that he created is that in his own way, he was trying to say, and through this song, he was trying to say, look, people, look what I accomplished. I accomplished it because I worked hard. I had vision. I had the right coaching along the way. Anyone can condition themselves to do something great and contribute it to the world, uh, make mankind better. That was truly the saddest thing about Michael's story as a whole. It got played out as a, as a tabloid, uh, uh, salacious, uh, such a fashion. The focus was all directed into a negative context when you look at uh, the potential positive that uh, you could take and look at the same lifetime and the same situation and the same accomplishments and you could uh, see them as such inspirational work. Well, he was very much ahead of his time in, in many ways. I mean, look at Earth Song, just for example. I mean, who was talking about global warming and the destruction of the environment back then? Almost nobody. It was basically Michael and Sting, and they were both being ridiculed for it. The media just absolutely ridiculed them. And now it's become so incredibly urgent. And he even now, nobody really gives Michael his props for having raised the alarm so often and so loudly and so early. Especially when you consider the Earth Song was written in the 80s. 89 is when I first worked on it. Yes. And, and isn't it true that sometimes the people who are at the cutting edge of trying to do good in the world, uh, sometimes they're frequently misconstrued and it kind of works out the opposite to what uh, you would hope or expect or the way you'd like it to be. What I'd like to do quickly is try to explore with you the relationship between history and blood on the dance floor. So when you came to work on blood on the dance floor, just a couple of years after history had been released, how many of those tracks were tracks which had been worked on for the history project, but had not made it on to the album? That is a little bit tricky. Various songs kind of came from different sources on the Blood on the Dance Floor album. It wasn't just necessarily from the history album. The title song, A Blood on the Dance Floor, that was one of those tracks that when I explained earlier about Teddy Riley's involvement on Dangerous, that came out of that era. Because Michael just loved that groove. When we were finishing the History album, and at the same time they were doing the tour prep, they were also shooting the Ghosts movie. At one point, Ghosts was going to be a song and a music video, and it was going to be tied into the Adams Family movie. Uh, I forgot which Adams Family movie it was. The Adams Family Values, and I think that was going on in the Dangerous Era. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 93 or something like that? 
Something like that. That was like a post-dangerous uh, project when it was originally conceived and uh, everything uh, got to whatever stage it got to. And then this was the point in time at the end of the History album. My understanding was they had everything they needed. They had all the sets built. They kind of had the storyline. They kind of had the, the script. I don't, I don't know uh, to what detail. And we had several songs that were destined for that. There were a lot of these odds and ends that then came together. And they finished the photography uh, with Stan Winston directing. Stan Winston being an absolute uh, whiz at uh, digital special effects. That really, again, an, another project that was the character that Michael plays in Ghosts. It's actually a short film, film short, as Michael would say. You know, there's so many biographical elements to Michael himself in that story and in that character of Mayer. The music was from tracks that had existed earlier. So we were working on that before the tour began. So when the History Tour took its break, we went in to finish up the elements that became the Blood on the Dance Floor album. There also was the finishing of the music and the elements that were going into the soundtrack of the Ghosts film short. A lot of these elements kind of were, came from this place or that place and got used. Uh, Superfly Sister was from Dangerous Album because that was a Brian Loren song. Ghosts and Is It Scary, they were originally written with the intent of this Adams Family movie. And so then they were held over. And then all of these things now came together, not only in the Ghosts movie, but also to on the Blood on the Dance Floor album. That was an interesting time. Michael took that time between the two halves of the history tour to accomplish a lot of work, a lot of studio work. Michael wrote yet another song that we recorded and finished for the Elizabeth Taylor 60th birthday television special, as well as him finishing up work on some of these songs that did go on Blood on the Dance Floor album. And we did some of that work in uh, Montserrat. We went to Switzerland and worked for a while in the studio there. Then we came back to Los Angeles and worked at the record plant in Los Angeles to finish that up. And then uh, the other half of the album being a tracks from remixers, that was kind of the, I want to say that was kind of the orphan child that the Blood on the Dance Floor album was really um, part of the motivation for that was that was really helping us support the tour because Michael was touring a lot of uh, the world. There was a big push for that overseas. It saw very little, if any, promotion. 
in the United States, but it was kind of the accompanying release to partner up with the history tour. One of the areas that's of the most interest, of course, is the song Morphine and how that came about. What do you remember about the origins of that song and working on it and whether Michael ever spoke about it? I remember the song was in, at the time that I came on board the project, uh, that song was already in some partial state of completion. I think he still had to sing vocals and, and there were different elements that he wanted included in that. I know Billy Betrell worked on that for a while at the record plant, completing that song. Yes, I think there was a autobiographical component that uh, obviously had greater significance later. I wasn't around at the inception, at the beginning of the song. I, I don't know who started the studio work on that track. This was a project that I kind of assumed the role of the uh, production supervisor on because Michael was in Los Angeles working for a while on the album. Michael did not have anything to do with remixes, so Sony put me in charge of the remix portion of it, which was not that I was having to do it or oversee it. I was having to interface in such a fashion with all of the, the parties that were doing the remixing and supplying them with what they needed and then getting their results back and being the person kind of in charge of when the album went to mastering, overseeing that. Towards the end of the Blood on the Dance Floor, Prince was born. Prince was born in that time frame of all of these other things happening. I don't know the exact date or, or how these things coincided. But the reason why I bring that up is because when Prince was born, Michael didn't want his family and everything that was going on in light of the other issues that were happening with him that were, were so controversial and the hubbub of the, the tour and this other work, after Michael completed the work that he was required to do in Los Angeles in the United States, Michael went to France. And when Michael was in France, it became a little bit more difficult to communicate a lot of details on completing mixes and, and mastering. So I had to step up and take on a slightly larger role in the process. And at one point, I remember I had to fly to Paris. I flew with a, uh, a suitcase in which I had assembled a small playback system so that Michael could hear. I think at that time we were in the mastering. It was either the mastering or the mixing phase. And I had to play things for Michael in a uh, hotel where he was staying in Paris. So I was, <laughs> I was having to, in the middle of some portion of the project, I think it was the mixing process, I had to fly to Paris and play things for Michael. And then he got on the phone and gave the people back in L.A. 
notes as to what he wanted done. There were a group of people there working in L.A. on the different uh, tracks. And then in the mastering phase, I got to be the person supervising that. And then I was supposed to fly back to Paris and visit Michael again. And I was in a quandary because Michael wanted me to fly to Paris. But at the same time, there was a deadline for the mastering of the album. And I couldn't leave in the mastering of the album. So I had to weigh in my mind uh, what's the more important thing that I, I have to face here. And I decided I'd let someone else go in my place to Paris so that I could not let Sony miss the deadline for the mastering of the album. Because, of course, once the mastering is completed, it has to go into the manufacturing plants. I couldn't let that deadline slip. So there was a trip I was supposed to make to Paris, and I I just uh, I, I somehow begged off and had someone else. I, I think it might have been Brad Sevenberg. I had someone else go in my place, and there was some kind of a glitch in the technology and all the stuff that I had organized so well. Uh, when I wasn't there, they encountered some problems that I felt terrible about, but at least the album was delivered to Sony in time for them to make the release. So I completed what I was supposed to do. I'm curious about the context within which Blood on the Dance Floor came to be for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it was very unusual for Michael to release something so quickly off the back of something else. Usually there were years between Michael projects. And secondly, all of the songs, possibly with the exception of Morphine, were old songs, which were essentially offcuts from previous projects. And thirdly, half the disc ends up being filled up with remixes, which Michael later publicly complains about in an interview and says that he hates remixes and he didn't want remixes on the album. So was Sony imposing some kind of deadline? Were they demanding a project which just had to be delivered by a deadline? Or what was going on there? What was the impetus behind Blood on the Dance Floor? You may be correct. I never really received a definitive, this is for a contractual obligation. But I got the feeling that was potentially one component of why this was the nature of it as it was released and when it was. I think it served several purposes, one of which was the fact that Michael was not touring the United States. Uh, the History Tour played in Hawaii, but it did not visit the continental uh, United States. There was very much, I think, an opportunity on the business side of things, to capitalize in the worldwide sense as having a release that helps uh, support the tour and uh, helps the tour in its its international markets. And it may have at the same time been helping fulfill a contractual obligation. If that, in fact, was the case, I didn't ever get a definitive word on that. It was just that it seemed to be a great way 
to have a release happen at a point in time and use a bunch of songs that were good tracks that hadn't seen the light of day yet. I agree with you totally. Michael's attitude towards remixes were he wanted nothing to do with remixes. He never listened to them. He never wanted to hear them. He said, uh, you know, it's like after we put out the record, then somebody else takes it and somebody does something else with it. He says, it's no longer mine. It's no longer a representation of my music. It's what someone else uh, feels they can do with it or they can interpret it. That's one of the reasons why I was pretty busy on this particular project. Michael did give an interview shortly after Blood on the Dance Floor came out where he spoke very candidly about the remixes and about how he had not been on board with the remixes, which we touched on. But what he also said was, it was Sony. Sony insisted. Sony made me put the remixes on. I didn't want them on there, and I knew I was right. Did you have any sense at that time that the love affair between Michael and Sony was beginning to turn sour? Well, I I wouldn't know if I would express what was happening in that era in the Blood on the Dance Floor as uh, the relationship was was starting to go south. But there was definitely uh, the feeling that Sony wanted this this product, this, this album, and largely driven by the commerce and the business side of things as opposed to the creative side. The typical way that Michael would approach a project and want there to be this collection or this bringing together of these various elements and all of these elements having some kind of unique quality that was a little bit more uh, forward-leaning or thinking in terms of this is something, you know, that maybe people haven't heard before. A new freshness to. There was definitely the feeling that this one has to be done and uh, there's a most definitely a pressure being put on from the label, which was the thing that I felt in terms of having to take over being in the uncomfortable place of knowing how much Michael disliked remixes having that kind of like fall in my lap in terms of you're basically going to have to be the person that kind of is the central cog in the wheel for that process. Someone at Sony, actually, all of the remixers submitted, I want to say anywhere from five, six, maybe up to 10 different versions of remixes. I got all of those. And then it was someone at Sony who actually chose which were the tracks that were going to go onto the album. I said something to Michael at some point in time, and Michael kind of indicated to me something to the effect of, don't even talk to me about about the remixes, because I, I don't, there's nothing there I want to know or hear or care about. So I did get to review them. And while there were a couple that had some um, interesting uh, things going on in them, I really had the understanding. This was definitely, the company wanted this. This really filled out the, to make the album complete. 
in terms of a sellable product. But it did feel like kind of like a, a hybrid kind of thing. Uh, this was also the era when albums were being created or marketed as what they called maxi singles, where there would be the album cut, the single cut, there'd be three or four different versions of remixes. The label would then have a commercial product that they could release and sell, and it could have up to 10 tracks, but it was all based off the same principle of recycling and a slight variation. Maybe there'd be an instrumental, an acapella. Companies were trying to create a market for a product that was, they were in fact manufacturing what it was that was going to be sold. Not that there was a huge public outcry for these maxi singles. Uh, I know that for the hardcore fans who want every single version of every single release, there's definitely a built-in market for it. I just have one last question about Blood on the Dance Floor, and it's to do with the song Blood on the Dance Floor. I had heard that it was originally done by Teddy Riley back in the Dangerous Sessions, which interestingly, no one's ever heard that version in the community, in the fan community at least, and I would love to hear that one day. But I have heard that when it came time to consider putting that song on the Blood on the Dance Floor album, that all of the original tracks were unavailable and there was only some kind of mixed down version and the team had to recreate all the elements. Is is that the case? Can you talk about that? Yes. Of the different technical issues the team has had to go through, one of the most interesting is uh, the track uh, Blood on the Dance Floor. As I mentioned earlier, there was this dat that Teddy had of all of these grooves that he created. Now, he brought that dad of all these grooves to Michael uh, when he began work on the Dangerous Project. One of the grooves was, in fact, the groove, which was Blood on the Dance Floor. Teddy created the dat as basically as a selection of demos that he was presenting to Michael in the Dangerous Era. And a lot of these demos were, in fact, uh, not recorded to any medium. Rather, they were played virtually out of instruments, voice generators, synthesizers, virtual plugins. And uh, when Michael, I remember there was a time in history when uh, I was in a meeting with uh, Michael and we were playing his famous dat. Uh, he turned to Teddy Riley and said, Teddy, all these great sounds that you used, uh, creating all these, these are such great sounds. These these grooves are so good. And Teddy was listening, going like, yeah, th these are good. These are really cool. And Teddy said, I don't even have the equipment anymore that made those sounds. And because the DAT recording was made basically as a demo, there wasn't any multi-track of that track in existence. Michael had laid a vocal down over the, the two-track mix that was the demo. And uh, then when it came time, because Michael's one to want to 
make the smallest kind of adjustment in some element in the mix, especially in the, the rhythmic components, the percussion things. What we had to do, and this was largely uh, Brad Buxer, is Brad Buxer went into the studio and in the computer system Pro Tools, he recreated every element, every component of the original instrumental track for Blood on the Dance Floor, and he recreated that part as an independent component on an independent track. So now, if Michael said, I really like that little hit that happens in the, in the offbeat in this one little section, then that was on a separate track, and that could be brought in, and that could be adjusted. So yes, Brad Buxer had the unenviable job of going in and recreating a Teddy Riley groove and a mix and a multi-track because no multi-track ever existed of that song. Amazing. So Matt, to your knowledge, is there a version of Teddy Riley's original Dangerous Era Blood on the Dance Floor with Michael Jackson vocals? Or was it just the the demo from the DAT that you guys were recreating? Uh, it was the demo from the DAT that we were recreating. But what did exist was at some point the two tracks the mix down of the song was put on a multi-track and then Michael sang against that. Wow. That's how he wrote. He came up with the melody and the lyrics. That's how he, he wrote the song, but then there wasn't any way to then go back and to be able to control the individual elements of the the track. Mm -hmm. When we got to that stage of the production, we realized what had to be done. And I don't know if you're familiar with part of Brad Buxer's past history, but uh, this is something that he was a very adept at doing. And he could go back and create tracks uh, by listening to parts and then meticulously finding, honing in on the sound and then reperforming them. And the reason why I say that is because for the longest time, he did that very thing for the artist known as Weird Al Yankovic. Right. Okay. And when Weird Al would do a takeoff on somebody's song, such as he did on Eat It, when he did the takeoff on Beat It, or Fat, in the case of Bad, and he did that. So this was something that Brad had done at an earlier point in his career. He was doing this because he had to do it for Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> uh, those tracks that Weird Al was putting up in his takeoffs. Brad just had to put a point on his skill set in order to do it um, at this point for that track because he did an incredible job. Whenever I put on the song Blood on the Dance Floor, it has replaced for me Billie Jean as the song whenever I buy a new sound system that I play because there's something about that song the way it hits the the just the the bass just the power it has the oomph it has i, I don't know what it is but it's my go-to michael jackson song now whenever i put it on a new sound system to hear how it sounds well also too as a, as a side note to that uh that was in fact mixed by mick gazowski 
I've been trying to get to him for quite some time. I would love to interview that guy. <laughs> yeah, no, he came on board in this era. Yeah. And he went to uh, Montserrat with us. Absolutely a brilliant genius, not just of a recording engineer in, in his musical knowledge, but technically. I mean, he's designed and built studio equipment, uh, electronic equipment. Um, his mind works, you know, he's like he's like super geek in terms of he understands the technical side to the nth degree as well as the musicality. As Michael said, it's you not only have to hear it, but you have to feel it. And uh, he operates on that level. And he was a tremendous asset to the Sony uh, company for many years. I'd love to interview Mick, or I think, uh, as Michael called him, Hot Wings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that may have been the name that that was dubbed. Uh, uh, Mick, Mick uh, definitely did enjoy Hot Wings, yes. <laughs> now, Matt, was... Blood on the Dance Floor, was that your last project with Michael? That was the last project with Michael directly, in terms of sitting in the room and, and working with him in face-to-face. This is a funny story. One of the days we're working at the record plant, there's press, and there's people waiting outside the front of the record plant. And it's time for Michael to leave. Michael says, I, I, I can't go out and, and his security guys are, you know, waiting to, to drive him somewhere in a car. So we devised the way there was a back entrance. I had to pull my vehicle around. I had a uh, uh, an SUV and I pulled around to this side door while the security guys were at the front door with the car that they thought Michael might be in. And uh, Michael jumped in my car and I had to drive them to a, a location. And, and we had to then, uh, he jumped out of my car and then he got in with his security guys and drove away. It was just one of the, at that point in the career and the life and all the craziness, it seems like that was a very <laughs> appropriate moment to be one of the last, uh, you know, on the last project with Michael. I did, however, I stayed in touch with Michael. We would talk maybe once a year, maybe more. He would call me. I went on to work with uh, the legacy division of Sony on a lot of the, well, basically everything that was released as a re-release, an anniversary package, the ultimate collection. I worked on all those projects in some fashion. And what was the reason that you didn't work on Invincible? Well, the picture had changed in the greater landscape, as well as in uh, Michael's world. By this time, Michael was very much wanting to be sounding current and modern. And hip-hop was a huge musical phenomenon in, in the industry. He wanted to work with a lot of these younger guys coming up, and I call that the modern producer. The modern producer is generally the person who has a computer, has a keyboard, and he can program basically a whole track. He can create an entire song, very often being the writer, the performer, and the recording engineer, and 
the producer as well. And this was the era where that shift really became prominent in a big way because the technology had developed. Michael liked and wanted to work with these people. And very often, a studio maybe wasn't even needed because a lot of these people had their own systems. Maybe they had a home a type uh, studio arrangement, or maybe there was a recording studio uh, in, the, in the picture. But these studios were scattered far and wide around the country to wherever these modern producers lived and worked. The old team that worked with Michael kind of fell by the wayside. He worked uh, with a lot of people for quite a while. And it wasn't until the very end of Invincible that Michael then wanted to, he realized the need for a standard of quality that he could not get otherwise. And he spoke to Bruce Wedeen and Bruce Wedeen came back and came on board. And I know Bruce mixed many of the tracks on Invincible. I don't know if he mixed all of the tracks because of this nature of Michael moving around everywhere. I wasn't part of the, whatever the traveling circus was that would go to whatever situation it was in whatever place. And my own needs to be dad at that time grew a little bit greater. Leaving town at the drop of a hat or at a, a phone call became less advantageous to me. Michael realized that. Michael knew uh, that uh, I was committed to uh, my family and uh, needs of my daughter. He would call me and he would say, how's everything going? How's everything going with your daughter? And, and we would chat. We had very nice chats. It kind of became the, the working uh, method that, that a lot of people were gravitating to. A lot of people were no longer, unless you were the top, top recording act, uh, a lot of people weren't doing the big studio thing. A lot of people were doing the, the smaller studio thing, or they were building the home studios. The whole industry, about the year 2000, went through a huge transition. The whole indie artist scene became very large because people found they had access to technology that allowed them to do quality recordings that they had not been able to do previously. So there was a whole lot of factors that changed in the industry and in the larger picture of technology and the internet came into being. So uh, there was just a huge shift. While I continued to work with Sony Legacy and uh, a great producer there who worked on those projects, Al Q, we called him, Al Qualieri. He was a great guy to work with, and uh, some of the other people at the Legacy label. And then uh, following Michael's passing with the estate, I still am called on occasionally uh, to work with the estate in connection with Sony. And what was your view of Invincible when you heard it? That puts me in a difficult position. <laughs> I had no attachment to it. For me, it was coming from a very different musical place. 
in terms of Michael's music always, to me, seemed to in some way have some kind of an organic component to the albums and to the music in some regard or in some fashion. And it seemed to me to be very fractured or very... It felt like a bunch of tracks. I know that Bruce worked uh, to be the cohesive element of bringing these different things together. Individually, there are some very enjoyable tracks on it. There are some nice things. But I don't find it listenable in the way that I did Michael's earlier albums. Yeah, I think definitely the word detached comes to mind a little bit. I mean, you've spent so much time talking about how directly involved Michael was with the team in all of those albums from Thriller all the way through to Blood on the Dance Floor and just organically building those tracks. But I mean, you look at the Invincible liner notes and the credits and it's just huge, huge teams of people putting songs together. There's so many co-writers. Some people who have talked about the album really just say that, you know, in, in a lot of cases, Michael sort of just came in at the last minute and sang the song that was put together by a lot of other people. I think Brad Sundberg talks about that era as feeling very different in the studio. I, I think he's always been a little bit reserved with how he talks about those sessions, but the words I think he uses are different. They felt different to previous sessions. Yeah. They were different, and this was one of the things that I know from a few discussions Michael expressed after that era, and then his mounting of the uh, project for the This Is It shows. I know there was discussion or there was talk about Michael really missing the old team and in some way wishing that the, the, the team could be brought back together. And in this respect, I feel that the cycle, if you look at the cycle in a circular terms, Michael didn't get to fully see the cycle complete and come back to that point that I feel, and that I have heard expressed from other people as well, that Michael felt there was yet something else and being able to get those people who were always the core people back together and do something more. I know that Michael had more to do and to say, and his music had other places to go. As I mentioned in History Project, the uh, un- realized potential of the song history. I think there was kind of like, there was something else yet to come should Michael have not passed away when he did, unfortunately. Can you recall the last time you saw Michael Jackson and what that was like? The very last time that I saw Michael in person was at the event, which was the support show that they did. There was a, a bunch of music. There were a, a people who spoke. I forgot there was a comedian who was the host of the show. And it was held on the grounds of Neverland. And it was an outdoor stage. There was lots of seats. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of, of, of people. Were invited, so there was a, it was a large uh, audience. It was a large seating area, 
ironically, I saw Michael because the stage was located at some distance from the house. And then at some point in the course of the event of the show, all of a sudden people, there's a buzz that started to go through the crowd. And I turned around and here was Michael and he was crossing the lawn coming to the stage. And I don't know who was accompanying him. Uh, He was with uh, two or three other people. And when he got close enough, I could see, I, I wanted to kind of get his attention and say, hi, Michael, you know, just say hello. But I could see that uh, he, his attention, he, he kind of wasn't there in terms of either he was overwhelmed or because it was in the middle of the legal proceedings. That was the last time that I saw him physically. Uh, that was... Unfortunately, it it wasn't a good final moment. Uh, Moments that I remember best uh, in in the final moments were uh, when we were working on the uh, Blood on the Dance Floor and when we were in uh, Montserrat working on the Blood on the Dance Floor, uh, some of the music. And uh, we had the opportunity, we were invited to the uh, home the estate of uh, Charlie Chaplin. So the entire uh, production unit, the team, along with Michael, we all went and we all spent the evening. We had a wonderful dinner and there were uh, several people. I I don't know. They were obviously the descendants of, of Charlie Chaplin, but at this moment I couldn't recall their names. And there was the people from the recording studio there. We had an absolutely wonderful dinner. It was a wonderful time. I know Michael had a lot of fun that night, just being Michael. He had me pack up a whole bunch of toys before before we left the States and went there. And so there was a whole bunch of uh, him uh, and the younger kids uh, running around and play going on. And, uh, that, that, was a, uh, that was a memorable moment. That's a beautiful um, memory. And... Yeah, there it was. It was very nice. When we fast forward, you know, almost a decade after that, Michael had gone through so much. He went through his trial and and massive ordeal there in the mid-2000s and after that became somewhat of a vagrant and sort of travelled around the world, staying from hotel to hotel with his family without wanting to live in Neverland anymore and then finally wanted to return to the stage with This Is It and go out again on another tour. And we know that Michael obviously tragically passed away uh, in June 2009. What I'd like to know from you is, how did you hear about Michael's passing? Do you remember that moment? Well, I was working in my own studio at that time. And uh, because there was so much in the news about Michael and the preparation for the This Is It performances, there was constant things in, in the press, in, in the tabloids were all over uh, what was going on as, you know, making, making mountains out of molehills. And uh, uh, the, the uh, person who, who owns the property where my studio was located came out and said to me, there's this rumor about Michael. I said, really? 
They said, yeah, something about, you know, something's happened to him. And I said, oh. Uh, and so I, whatever I was working on, I, I, I took a break and then I went into the, uh, uh, I went into the house that was there and the television was on and the woman uh, who, who was there said, this is all over the internet and this is, this is, this is on every channel of the television. And it was, of course, the, the helicopter, uh, camera crew over, over the house there where he was staying in Beverly Hills. And they're saying, well, the announcement is, and it was kind of like, I, I don't know if at that point someone had said something officially or if it was unofficial, but the tone of the entire thing was that this, this is, this is very bad. If not, you know, the final moment. And then the woman there was sitting at the computer said, well, the internet's crashed. Uh, and so we watched this, this scene that was unfolding on, on the television from the helicopter viewpoint. Then they, someone finally came on and they said, well, that's it's the official announcement now. And I went back out into my studio and uh, I called Bruce Wedeen. And uh, I said, Bruce, can can you can you believe what what's what what what's happening? And Bruce said to me something to the effect: He said, "The world just stopped for me. He goes, it, it just it just stopped." And I said, Bruce, uh, I, I I got no words. To, to, to express the, the state of shock that, that I'm in. And, and he said something else. I mean, we were both totally uh, dumbfounded. Um, Bruce had spoken to someone else. I don't know who it was. It might have been Quincy. I don't, I don't know who it was. He said, yeah, this is, this is, uh, this is terrible. And uh, I obviously couldn't work any longer and so I, I turned off all the equipment and I left and I got in my car to drive home and on the drive home every single radio station uh, because terrestrial radio was still an, an entity at that time a little more so than it is now but I could go to any station and they were playing Michael Jackson's music. I mean, I had 20 presets on the radio. And I went through every single channel. It was his music. And it was just it was the most amazing thing that I've ever experienced because every single station, regardless of what kind of station it was, what genre, whether it was talk radio or, or music, FM, AM, everything was playing Michael's music. And I, uh, then I realized uh, the gravity of it. And, and I actually turned the radio off uh, and just, just went home. And uh, that, was, that was a very sad day. And on that note, we always ask our special guests at the end of their episodes 
the same question, which is how, in your opinion, should Michael Jackson be remembered? Well, Michael's life, even though it wasn't as long as it should have been, he had a long career in music that took him many places. The more he worked, the more he traveled the world, the more he met people, the more at his core, he viewed the world and humanity as having so much potential. I know he was very uh, frustrated personally with the feeling that uh, things should be so much better than they are on the earth for everyone and all of the life that's on the earth, the wildlife and nature. He was always in awe of the beauty of nature and of humanity and of humankind. And that, I think, is the message or the thought that uh, if he's going to remember to be remembered in any fashion, it's that was the person who he was, and that's what he was about. This is what he wanted for the world to be. He wanted the world to be a better place. He tried his best in his own way to try to help, to try uh, to make uh, people aware of situations that existed on the earth and to try to help people and causes and make the world a better place. And uh, there are many people who no one understand that, and there are people who don't feel that way. And I think as time goes on, it's very possible people will come to this realization when they can see kind of the, the whole complete picture of, of Michael, of his life and his career, and many of those things that weren't put in their face by the, the tabloids that did it just for commercial gain. You know, when the true nature of Michael, Michael's spirit can be understood and appreciated, I think people will see that uh, Michael was special and Michael was different and more than anything else in the world. Michael wanted people to be successful, to be good. He wanted the goodness in people to come out. I've heard him say, never give up. Never give up on your dreams. Always work. Don't listen to what other people say. Trust your instincts and what guides you. And uh, I think there's a time where uh, this sentiment is, is needed in the world, that we need a voice that says, let's try to bring about some good. Let's uh, uh, try to make this a better place for everyone. Let's hope that that can happen someday. I love your thoughts, Matt. Just beautiful. Matt, thank you so much. If fans want to follow you and your work, are you active on social media? And if so, where can they find you? I am not active on social media. However, I realize that I have to create a better presence. I want to work towards that. What I'll do is um, I have a, uh Instagram account, which I need to do some work on because there isn't anything on it. It's just a, it's just the title, Megasound, M-E-G-A-S-N-D. 
I'm working on a lot of things in my life, and that's one of the things I have to give a little bit more energy to is is actually putting together my uh, presence on on social uh, networking. I've just followed you. I've just followed you on Instagram. Okay. After now having spoken to you, I will have to go back and put on some content. That would be great. I've also now just followed you on Instagram, so thank you very much for that. Uh, for our listeners as well who'd like to follow us and connect with us, uh, we are at the MJ Cast on all the major social networks, including Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at the MJ Cast at iCloud.com. If you'd like to email us, we love hearing from our listeners through email. And of course, you can find us uh, on YouTube. Uh, if you just search the MJ Cast on, on YouTube, you'll find us there. We put all of our episodes on there as well. But we love to be listened to as a podcast primarily. So whether you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please subscribe to the MJ Cast to get our episodes as soon as they come out. And also consider rating and reviewing our show. It really helps surface the show uh, in Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you for taking the time. You have been so extraordinarily generous with your time to um, to record these two very long episodes with us. So we thank you very, very much. Well, I think we all very much appreciate uh, Michael and his efforts in the world. So let's hope that there's people out there, uh, maybe people in the fan base, maybe uh, other people who discover Michael and uh, can carry on that spirit. Fabulous. Fabulous.